0: profile you're listening to premier christian radio Well, hello and welcome along to The Profile with me, Justin Briley, and my guest today, Paul S. Williams, CEO of Bible Society. Before we find out more about Paul, uh, just a reminder that The Profile is brought to you every week here on Premier Christian Radio in partnership with Christianity Magazine. And if you want to find out more about the magazine and get a free sample copy, simply go to their website, premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. And you can find loads more interviews with Christians from all walks of life on the podcast as well. And if you want to find out more about that, simply go to our podcast area over at Premier Christian Radio. Dot com. Well, uh, Paul Williams is head of the Bible Society in the UK, which for over 200 years has sought to bring the Bible alive to every man, woman, and child, as they say on their website. Uh, we'll perhaps hear the story of how that all began. But uh, Paul himself has held various positions in the world of business and finance before moving more into the theology of work, the marketplace, and and leadership. And just recently, his new book, Exiles on Mission, has been published. It's all about how Christians can thrive in a post-Christian world. Welcome along to the programme, Paul. Great to have you with me.
1: Great to be here. Thanks, Justin.
0: So we're obviously doing this edition, as many editions of the profile have been recorded recently from lockdown at our various homes. Um, How has this period treated you? I I mean, none of us saw this coming, but has the transition to working remotely and so on been okay? Okay.
1: I I feel guilty because I um, have a a beautiful environment in which to work from home. And um, as um, someone who actually enjoys thinking, reading and writing, um, you know, it's a bit of a gift. Um, Having said that, um, running an organization as complex as Bible Society um, from home means that I'm spending a lot of time on screens and getting that Zoom stare yeah. that we're learning about. So that's that's my biggest problem <laughs> is um, uh, you know eye strain and headaches. Actually, well,
0: sorry to create a little bit more Zoom fatigue for you <laughs> as we <laughs> record this evening. But um, yes, well, we we all know what it's like, and we're going to come obviously tomorrow. The your thoughts on on what this pandemic means for the world, the church, and and what you're doing through Bible Society in the course of today's program and the book as well, of course, which um, I was glad to add my own recommendation and endorsement to a uh, really excellent book, Exiles on Mission published. Um, well, wh- who are the publishers? Cause I think Brazos Press is, is what's on the toppy I've got, but uh, is it also being published uh, through a- other people as well here in the UK?
1: Yeah. So Brazos is a, an imprint of Baker in, in the U S um, obviously I was working and teaching in the U- in Canada and North America But in Britain, it's being published by SBCK. And it's also available through the Bible Society website, just to put in a plug there. there. (laughs)
0: Um, Before we hear a bit about your background, um, tell us about the Bible Society. Um, I said 200 years or more that it's been in existence now. Um, Where did it all start?
1: Yeah, it's uh, um, well, it formally started in 1804. But we always tell the story beginning with Mary Jones, um, the young Welsh girl who um, saved up uh, and walked um, a marathon length to get a Bible from the home of the Reverend Thomas Charles. Uh, Charles went on to be one of the founders of Bible Society, along with uh, William Wilberforce, other members of the Clapham sect. Uh, And when when Mary got to Charles's house, uh, there is, you know, there's various um, versions of this story. But fundamentally, um, he was very in very short supply. He ended up um, giving her um, at least one of his own Bibles, we think probably two. um, And uh, and then realized that, you know, this was for him. A defining moment that there was this hunger for scripture that was not being met, and it was a symbol of how inaccessible and unaffordable actually the Bible was and he felt that something had to be done about that um, and uh, you know he went to london he he met with various people, including Wilberforce. Um, Lots of denominations were involved in the early meetings. It's really amazing to read about it, mm. and the vision that they had at that time was extraordinary. Um, uh, that you know, and, and the famous saying comes from, I think, it's a Welsh um, uh, Baptist, I believe, uh, Reverend Hughes, who said, "Well, if 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 for Wales, why not?" Uh, for the kingdom, you know, and if, if for the kingdom, why not for the world? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, that was really the birthing then of this glo- amazing, incredible, really global mm-hmm. movement um, that led to an exponential translation of the Bible into languages and um, populations uh, very rapidly, um, from hardly scratching the surface of accessibility of the global population to reaching, you know, over half within 50 years. Just absolutely extraordinary. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's, it's a great explosion. foundational
0: story as well, isn't it? The, explosion I, I, of mission, yeah. 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 I, it's, 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 I think I've seen a, a video of the story of Mary Jones and her trek to, uh, to ask for a Bible. You, you um, can
1: see the video if you go to Mary Jones World in Bala.
0: That's right. That's right. Um and and obviously Bible Society today continues that work all over the world. Um but I suppose doing it in quite a different environment to the one that Wilberforce and Co found themselves in. Uh there was in a sense uh you know back then it could be argued the Bible was sort of foundational to British culture and society. Um and obviously we're going to be talking about this in regards to your book but we live in a, in a, effectively a post-Christian west now. So what what sort of different ways is the Bible society in today's day and age trying to continue that mission that, that first began in the 1800s?
1: I think um, we, we, we've developed the notion of what we call the Bible life cycle, um, which starts with translation and moves to uh, printing, publishing, distribution. Um, uh, if you, literacy is a big part of it. Um, engagement, understanding and putting into practice and then advocacy that's, if you like, the full life cycle of the Bible. Now, that's a, that's a story. There's a sort of logic to that story um, that in some ways is a way of telling the history of the emphases of Bible society work over the last 200 years. But, of course, it's a story that begins with the assumption that there is a shortage of supply of the Bible. And now we've got to a situation where there's a shortage of demand hmm. and an excess supply. And so we're going round that life cycle the other way. And so our challenge today is, uh, as a effectively a communications agency, is how do we stimulate demand for Bible reading? How do we change the conversation about the Bible from negatives, uh, barriers to Bible reading, to... A hunger and we know that this is something that only the holy spirit can do so we're just working alongside because there is no natural appetite for scripture in fallen people Mm. and so we we, you know we we um we know that the the spirit has got to awaken something but it's amazing to see that happen Uh, you know and what happens when it happens it's yes
0: i mean even so the bible remains a potent symbol in itself doesn't it yeah and wielded for good or or not or not so good um just very recently uh, a picture of president trump standing outside a church in near the white house um was somewhat divisive you know um uh, effectively using the bible as a, as a prop really in that case for a particular political statement um what did you think of that? And what, what, what are the dangers, I suppose, in today's day and age in terms of the way the Bible is, is being used or abused?
1: Well, I think um, there is always the danger. We have this danger ourselves as believers um, of um, failing to uh, sit humbly under the scripture um, and then we can take it out of context and we can end up weaponizing it. Uh, and using it for our particular agendas um, uh, in ways that are contrary to the message of the Bible itself. And I think that, you know, one of the, the, the sort of passages of scripture that struck me powerfully, um, uh, I think that relates to um, any attempt really to co opt the Bible. In 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 any kind of unqualified way, because mm. we want the Bible to be part of our public conversation. But um, you know, there's this amazing passage, isn't in in the book of Joshua, when he's the people have crossed the river Jordan, they're on the brink of the promised land, and Joshua encounters this angelic warrior um he, he he doesn't you know and his question is are you are you for us or for our enemies and I think the answer that's given there with the drawn sword, which of course is a symbol of the Bible, the word of God is very important because the answer is neither I am commander of the armies of the Lord, so the question is are we on god's side <laughs> Um not whether God is on our side and uh, we have to be very careful indeed because the Bible will always judge us if we try to co-opt it, you know, it, it's, it's, it's a double-edged sword. And uh, I think that's, that's the, that's, that's the important thing to be aware yeah. of you yeah. know, when we try to do this.
0: Well, tell me, about your own experience growing up, was did the Bible figure uh, in your uh, childhood? Where you, did you grow up within a Christian context yourself?
1: Yeah, I, it did. I, I grew up in a brethren um, background. Both of my grandparents were Bible teachers um, and circuit preachers. Um, so I used to love the Bible quizzes as a child and do quite well at them. Uh, which, of course, is always encouraging.
0: Were you a bit of a swot in that way?
1: <laughs> well, I, the thing is, I've always had, and I, and I confess to you, I, you know, it's, it's it served me quite well until, um, you know, getting close to, um, you know, upper levels of higher education where it became impossible. But I'm quite good at <laughs> cramming for exams, you see. So I would cram for these Bible quizzes, and I wouldn't necessarily remember a lot afterwards, but I was very pleased to have won the, you know, the, the chocolate bar or whatever the prize was
0: very good and so, uh, you obviously then had faith you know very much inculcated from a young age uh, in a brethren background uh, was there a moment at which it sort of became real for you and not just something inherited from your parents and so on
1: uh yes um i think there were a couple of moments probably many people who grew up in a christian background have a similar uh, i i think um i know there was a moment again very similar to other stories Uh, As an 11-year-old at a Christian camp, uh, I had a very particular encounter with Jesus um, that involved the Bible. My grandfather was incredible at um, discipling me through Scripture, and uh, particularly Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart. He would say this to me almost every time I met him, Um, and um, would always debate the Scriptures with me. And I, I... Gained a love. I mean, you know, you probably can tell from the surname that I'm from a Welsh nonconformist background, and we Mm. love a good argument. We get very (laughs) passionate. So, I my argumentation energy was taken by my uh, my parents and my grandparents, and my grandfather in particular, into debating scripture and what it meant. And that was a great kind of training, in a way. It, it, It was a way of having that honed. I um had a real genuine experience of committing my life at the age of 16, uh, a conviction that I should be baptized. I was baptized in a Baptist church. Um, but I, I turned away actually um, from faith um, prior to, just prior to going to university. And, um, uh, you know, my reasoning was that I just found uh, hypocrisy in the church Mm. And, uh, you know, that, that there was some truth in that. But fundamentally, I think I wanted to do my own thing. Um, and I think there's, you know, w- looking back, one is aware that when when we really do take a serious stand for God, um, which I believe I did, you know, in my baptism age 16, mm. it's, it's immediately, you know, we will come under a degree of challenge. And, mm. and I think that I didn't stand at that time and i kind of fell away and i w- went my own way i wanted to do my own thing i gave my rationalized reasons for it hmm. um, but i kind of walked off and um so what did university
0: look like then as you entered it i suppose in a in a different mode of thinking at that point
1: yeah i i, I had a fabulous time at, at oxford I, I read um ppe politics philosophy economics as you know, yes, um, and um, All the best people. <laughs> yeah. um, I thoroughly enjoyed the intellectual stimulus, the um, um, the socializing, the you know the sport. I um, had um, good friends. Um, I had a great time in a way, but it was it was wasted time. Uh, you know, when I, um, you know, I came back to faith during that period um in my third year at the end of my second year um and i look back really on the waste of those of that time that i really just had i had a good time i was enjoying Mm. myself Mm. but i was wasting my life wasting the opportunity of oxford in, in many ways uh, certainly, wasting the opportunity to study i mean uh, I, I, I carried on that well, you 're very... hardly the
0: first student to, to admit <laughs> uh, to that i imagine
1: <laughs> carried on the bad habits of cramming you know
0: right well, in any case what, what you came back um what if you don 't mind sharing briefly what the circumstances of that were what what kind of brought you back eventually in your third year?
1: It was very dramatic. It's hard to summarise it quickly, but um, I I had an accident. I was being reckless, but I had a climbing accident, and I nearly died. Um, it was by the sea. Um, I ended up in the sea, felling, uh, fell off, uh, suffered a concussion, um, nearly drowned. And I found myself – and, and by this time, I was into all kinds of um, – I suppose I was through the philosophy I was studying. I was trying to pursue uh, atheism. I found the agnosticism didn't satisfy me. It felt intellectually kind of mere, you know, a mm. bit wishy-washy. And I, I, you know, again, I, I like. Lo- uh, so I wanted to actually have some uh, definite convictions around things. But what I found was that during this accident, when I thought I was going to die. I prayed to Jesus, you know, a very short prayer that Jesus would save me. Um, and obviously I got out of that and I knew in my heart, um, that I wasn't ready actually to die, that the, all of the intellectualizing I was doing wasn't really convincing me. Mm -hmm. And, um, That was a massive uh, psychological and emotional turning point. Um, I and it it was interesting for me. I would never make a theology out of this, Justin, but the way I reflected on it was afterwards was that God, you know, in going into these into the sea and nearly dying, God was reminding me of my baptism. Interesting, and and reminding me that he owned my life, Mm. and I had already made a pledge. Um, And you know, he hadn't forgotten that, and he was going to hold me to it. You know, so um, I, I, but I found that I actually, you know, I was sort of like I knew I had to go back to God, but I couldn't quite make it happen. It was very interesting experience, and it was again, I think. Again, this is very personal. So, again, I would be very cautious of theologizing mm, about sure, it sure. too much. But I had to wait for the Holy Spirit to invite me back. Mm. And that happened through a sermon at St. Old Age Church that Michael Green preached. And I know exactly where I was sitting. <laughs> and, um, you know, and then I had the privilege of being... Um, led to faith by him and discipled a little by, by Michael Green. Um,
0: Yeah. There you go. Extraordinary. Um, Thanks for sharing that story. Uh, Not a story I had heard before, but I'm glad I've heard it now. I rarely Um, tell
1: it, but that's partly because people don't ask very often. (laughs) (laughs) It's uh,
0: because I wanted to spend some time there. We'll have to just sort of have a more of a thumbnail sketch of, of what happened then in the intervening years up, up to the present. Um, Obviously, um, you met and married your wife and uh, family followed and so on. Um, but in terms of where your career went um, post university, I think it was in the sort of the world of business and uh, analyzing stock markets and that sort of thing. Um, tell us about that and, and where it, how you eventually landed up sort of looking at the theology of the workplace and the marketplace and, and such like.
1: I I think that at that point at Oxford, I had a big question facing me when I finished my studies, which was, was I going to carry on into the high paid career in the city that I'd set my heart on or not? And I began to experience um, what I now know is unusual, but remarkably precious, which was um, real discipleship in the local church I was part of, the Oxford Community Church uh, uh, later on. Um, and the pastor really confronted me over my reasoning, um, for going into the city job that I'd been offered, Very, you know, fantastic job for a student when you, you're eking a living out. Um, and he said, you, you're not ready. You are not, your character isn't sufficiently formed. You'll be eaten alive in that world. And of course, you know, I was, I was furious with him for challenging me about this. And I went back, you know, Sarah and I were just married. And I went back and told her about, you know, this outrageous remark that this pastor had said. And um, she said, well, I think he's right. You know, and, and you know it was one of these enormously frustrating experiences of hearing the Holy Spirit through your wife. Um, Uh, And that made a big change for her because we both had plans uh, to go to London. So we decided to stay. And that began a journey for me of God discipling me through these sort of life decisions. I went into what felt for me because of where I had set my heart like a real backwater. But it was actually a very good economic consulting firm, a national firm. But I was really beginning. You know, I knew that if God meant if God was real and obviously I'd made the decision and experience God as real, then it meant that everything in my life had to be submitted to the Lordship of Jesus, including um, public choice theory, you know, modern (laughs) economics, uh, all the consulting I was doing. So I went into the job with that view, but I then found it incredibly difficult to work it out. How do I do this? And I, I, you know, whilst my local church was sort of generally supportive, they really gave me almost no help in figuring out how to relate my faith to my work. And I began to get very frustrated. And so this was a big theme of my career was how do I do this? Mm. And, um, uh, you know, I wanted to quit. I thought the only way to have a life that's integrated is I should go and train in theology and be a pastor. And then I can Mm -hmm. have an integrated life and I won't have this split between, you know, all my, what I'm doing in the evenings, leading a group and doing this, that, and the other mm-hmm. I was doing, and, I, and then the daytime where I don't know how to connect faith and work. And that was very interesting because, you know, this time the big intervention from God um, was not don't go to the workplace. It was don't leave the workplace, you know, mm-hmm. stay there and figure out how to be a witness. Um, and uh, so there was a lot of discipleship going on. As I was seeking to integrate, and I think through various projects, I began that I was doing I did a big project for the Thatcher government at that time, and I learned a lot there about the, the way in which God's at work in the um, scattered church, and in a way, I saw myself as a member of the, of the scattered church, you know mm. in the world, in this economic consulting firm, trying to figure out how to be missional but also the gathered church. And I found that in that piece of writing that I was doing policy advice, I couldn't say the things I thought I should say. Um, it was partly about faith communities in urban regeneration and things like this and the economics of that, um, which were very positive. It was obvious the impact of faith, but it was very hard to talk about it within the paradigm. Mm. And I was stuck And then I read the Faith in the City report, which the Church of England's Urban Fund had published. Um, And it gave me language that was in the public arena, being quoted in, in, it was in Hansard, it was Mm. quoted in, you know, in in the major broadsheets that I could use to take the ground, if you like, to, to say the things that I needed to say without them being in my voice. And I began to see, God began to show me something that I think has stuck with me of how he weaves his missional purposes through the activities of the gathered church and the scattered church, and they go together. And I began to see that as a key to mission. And and I I think that became something that, I mean, I'd like to talk more about that when Mm, we have time. Yeah, absolutely. But I sort of followed that through in, in various stages of my career, I ended up as Uh, chief economist i did uh, a lot of consulting worked for very large companies and started a small company uh doing this sort of work
0: yeah um we're just about out of time in this section of the program but i I suppose i just wanted to ask do, do you feel like you know looking back on all of that that you know in and in the light of things like the recessions we've experienced and the banking crash and and all all of that stuff that happened in the you know 2000s uh whether whether any of those lessons have i suppose come to fruition uh whether we have actually learned how to integrate the christian worldview the ethics with the way our stock markets and business run or do you feel we're still where we were in the i don't know late 80s when you started looking into all this stuff
1: we're, we're further on, but we're not there yet. Um, you know, um, unfortunately, the sacred-secular divide is still a massive problem for us. But, um, yeah, we are further on in the Christian community and similarly in society. We've begun to challenge and question the, the, the sort of idea that the profit motive is the only reason for uh, working and doing business. And I think there's now, uh, it's much easier to challenge that. Um, uh, we're less good at um, the detail of, um, so, so, so then what's the alternative paradigm? Mm. How do we think well about that? Um, so that constructive imagination that I believe scripture really can give us, we're, we're less good at that. We're much better at the sort of broad critique. And I think um, we've got to get a lot better at um, a biblically formed missional imagination.
0: We're going to go to a break and we'll be back to talk about mission because that's the subject of the book. Uh, that you've recently published, Exiles on Mission, How Christians Can Thrive in a Post-Christian World. Uh, My guest on The Profile today is Paul S. Williams, CEO of Bible Society. Uh, You are listening to The Profile in partnership with Premier Christianity magazine. I'm Justin Briley. We'll see you again in just a moment. Premier Christianity magazine. In this month's issue... The world is in lockdown and
1: coronavirus
0: is dominating the news agenda. But what is God up to? We've put that question to 24
1: Christian leaders. Justin Welby, Pete Gregg, Lou Fellingham, Governor B, Mark Sayers, Noel Robinson, Rachel Gardner, Marilyn Baker, and many others explain what they believe God is doing in this moment. Plus, we talk to someone who's become a Christian during lockdown... The Reverend Anthony Thompson explains how he found the strength to forgive the man who murdered his wife. And Tom Wright gives us his opinion on the gift of tongues.
0: For your free copy, visit PremierChristianity.com forward slash free sample. Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Welcome back to the second part of today's show. I'm joined by Paul S. Williams, CEO of Bible Society. And Paul has held various positions in the world of business and finance before. And moving into the theology of work, the marketplace and leadership, we're going to be talking in this part of the program about his new book, Exiles on Mission. It's published by SBCK here in the UK, Brazos Press, uh, elsewhere in the world. It's all about how Christians can thrive in a post-Christian world. And um, just in that last section of the program, Paul, you were sort of saying how it was your, your background in business and analysis and uh, the marketplace and so on that sort of sparked these questions about how do I put my faith together? How, how does faith shape what I do here and how, how is it shaping the world? And, um, and I suppose all of that presumably came together in, in terms of the way you then went into for a number of years, a position more in academic circles, I suppose, in Vancouver, where you were actually trying to formulate some of this into ways that other Christians could learn and um, be helped as they went on that journey as well.
1: Yeah, um, you know, Justin, I I'd, I'd sort of got to the point really where I um, felt that, um, I felt it was a, a wrong move for me when I was initially asked to move into academia because I was beginning to see the enormous power of the church engaging um, in the sort of life of a city or a country uh, across all of the spheres. I was being involved in bringing together all the different sectors of society and forming strategies for cities and countries and, um, you know, something that uh, the church um, in some of my experience just couldn't see the point of doing. Um, But, you know, gradually, um, and I think now we see this in in movements like Movement Day, uh, where the church is beginning to see that, you know, the the abundant life that, that Jesus came to give us is... Is absolutely about the church being involved in the life of the city, in the life of the society. Uh, So I begin to see that, and it felt like, why would I leave that? And and in the end, the answer that God gave me was to to help others, to teach others. So I had this real privilege of of teaching a really diverse range of students, um, often mature students, people who had some work experience in in professional life or uh, craft or education healthcare a wide range from all over the world um Regent College Vancouver is a very international diverse place and so I was learning as much as I was teaching frankly from these people who were all amazing people with mm-hmm. incredible backgrounds and um really there because they were determined to integrate their faith with their work and um so that was a very rich period. And I led a, founded and led an institute um, uh, to take this kind of material around the world. Uh, we did lots of conferences and seminars and events. And it was out of that experience of working with church leaders, societal leaders, and this diverse range of students and this nurturing faculty environment that the, the book was really uh, mm. brought to birth. You know, I think it had been kind of incubating for a long time in me. But um, this is when it really came to birth, I think, during those yeah. days, those years.
0: I mean, do you think it's significant in a way? Your, your story almost reminds me a little bit of the present Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby, who obviously had a background as an oil executive before <laughs> moving into uh, being ordained and obviously now leading the Church of England. It feels like there's, there's a sort of sense that people feel like, OK, it's good to have some sort of real world, quote unquote, experience in that way, even leading, you know, what is you know, in many people's eyes, a spiritual organization, if you like.
1: Um, Yeah, I mean, and of course, part of the problem is the perception that some organizations are spiritual and others are not. I mean, we must understand that the adjective spiritual um, is to do with with the presence of the Holy Spirit. Mm. Um, And the Holy Spirit wants to be present in all um, that we're doing in all of our lives, in every sphere of society, um, you know that's the scope of God's yeah. redemption. It's the whole of creation, isn't it? So, you, um, you know, you talk
0: it, about the sacred secular divide. Obviously, in, in the book "Exiles on Mission," and and what do you mean by that? And why has it become such a abiding problem, uh, both for Christians and and the secular world, if you like?
1: I, I think I think um, it's part of our accommodation, the reason I think it's so long-lasting, because there's so many theological critiques of it, mm. um, um, is that it's part of the church's accommodation to a secular society. It, it goes alongside the, 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 secu, sec, the public-private split, where what um, secularism really is asking the church to do, and the church kind of acquiesced, is to would you mind just moving into the private sphere and uh, you know we 'll have a religion free um, public sphere, and I think that that mentality because we 've acquiesced to that and now we don 't really know how to behave in the public sphere in a way that is not that is authentic that, in a way that is authentic to mm. to the gospel we 're either very shrill and aggressive or we just sound like everyone else and assimilate uh we've mm. lost our authentic voice because we spent too long you know allowing ourselves to be privatized and we've stopped thinking about the gospel what was natural to evangelicals in the 19th century was that the gospel affected every sphere of life and mm. this is why they undertook child labor reform factory reform you know reform of the slave trade uh, abolition of slavery etc etc um you know uh, Um, work with prostitutes you know getting rid of the contagious diseases act. all of this work Mm. was because they understood that of course the gospel is both personal and public it's it's both you can't make it one or the other but we lost that in the 20th century and we still haven't recovered it and it's absolutely vital that we do
0: i mean obviously you talk about the fact that we live in a post-christian world and many people have talked about that written about that um interestingly in a recent article you wrote for premier christianity magazine you also said we live in a post-secular society as well and that was perhaps the first time i'd considered that idea Um, what do you mean by actually we're not just a secular society we're a post-secular society
1: i think that the um the power of the of the secular narrative is spent So, um, you know, it, it lingers, of course, there are still, um, flailings around, but, um, we should no longer, um, it, it probably was never a good idea to accommodate ourselves to it, but I, I understand, um, certainly, you know, why we did that to some degree, but we shouldn't do that anymore. I mean, this is, this is, um, Uh, a false God whose weaknesses have been brutally exposed, not least by the pandemic that we're in now. But even before that, um, the the failure of the secular story to actually deliver to people the sense of um, progress, um, stable, reasoned, you know, society in which we're all getting better off and healthier and everybody's happy. Um, the the very, very obvious failings of that narrative and the way in which those goods, which are really gifts of our Christian heritage, um, are beginning to disintegrate. Um, people may not understand the reasons, but they certainly feel that this is not working. This is, I'm, I'm not, I'm not going forward. I'm not, my life is, you know it, my my family, my community is is breaking down it 's not actually becoming more whole and strengthened um, and there's the, we have this epidemic of mental illness and loneliness mm-hmm. um, so um, it, when I, when I talk about post secular I, I I mean that the secular narrative has now failed and i think the evidence is is very apparent and even some of the um proponents will acknowledge this mm. um that, that it's not delivered
0: and, and when you say the pandemic has revealed the faults if you like it you, you say that in, in as much as you don't think the pandemic has exactly caused all of the soul searching that's going on it simply kind of revealed that what we had wasn't enough do you want to just explain that a bit more
1: Well, I mean, certainly the the pandemic has caused has actually caused some soul searching, but in a way, it's amplified, it's catalyzed, it's Mm. accelerated things that were already happening for decades before. Um, And in that sense, I think that the pandemic will be seen as a very significant moment, but its significance will be not so much itself, but as what it represents of this shift the ending it will end up you know we, end, we you know it's always arbitrary when does one age or era or trend end and another one start it's kind of arbitrary i think the pandemic will end up being the marker mm. of the end of modernity by which i include what we've called postmodernity <laughs> and secularism interesting um, you know w- we we have got to stop reacting as if that is the dominant narrative and assume that it's actually something that we we push aside. Now, you know, but that's not the most important thing to say. There's no point in doing that unless we know what it is that we are offering in its place. And, And that requires a deep missional imagination. And my fear is that whilst we know the core of that, we know the core of the gospel, we have spent so long in this period where the sacred-secular divide has dominated our thinking and our practice that we no longer know um, and we no longer have a true missional imagination of how things could be uh, other than what they are, Um, except in a fairly superficial way. And, 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 And so that's my fear. And I think um, that's the opportunity of the lockdown.
0: Mm, absolutely. But it is it is a case of how we grasp that opportunity. Now, the book itself, Exiles and Mission, sort of published just as the lockdown and pandemic was getting into full swing. Um, I mean, obviously, would you have changed much in the book in the light of what this pandemic has brought about, or, or is the, the fundamental thesis, does it remain the same, I suppose, is, is my question.
1: Yes, yeah, so I, I think the fundamental thesis remains the same. Um, obviously, you know, um, a, any author, you write a book because you want people to read it. Um, <laughs> and um, and uh, so, you know, when, when your book comes out and there's a massive event taking place that makes it impossible to go around promoting it, <laughs> um, it, it, feels, um, it doesn't feel good, mm. but actually I think, um, there is something, um, very timely, you know, I mean, I've been, I've been in this book, uh, or the book's been in me mm. for a couple of decades and it's been, um, you know, the bulk of the work of it I did when I was teaching in Canada and most of the drafting, um, but the last part, I mean, which, uh, you know, the last 10% is very difficult. And I've been trying to do it whilst running Bible Society um, <laughs> and finishing off the editing. So it's been very difficult to, to finish it up. So I, I, I feel I just trust God with the timing of these mm-hmm. things, Justin. And, and there is a sense in which, you know, lockdown is an experience of exile. And, um, you know, in, in, in certain ways, there's, there's problematic and positive kinds of exile and ways we can inhabit exile and i think the lockdown in some ways is a is an object lesson in that
0: yeah what what for you then are, are some of the lessons you're hoping the church will pick up from this book what, what are some of the mistakes maybe that you feel the church is still making as it buys into you know the sacred secular divide and perhaps um is still making assumptions that simply don't exist anymore in the world as we know it. Well, what are some of the, the key things that you think the church needs to, to learn to do differently if we're going to be fruitful in our, in our mission in this post-Christian world?
1: Well, I think the first thing begins with the, the reason I've, I've focused on the word exile. Um, and um, the, uh, the concept of exile, of course, makes the, it suggests that there's some other place that's home. Mm. And, and really the question here is, there's an ambiguity, very deliberate on my part. Some people don't like the title um, because they feel that it's suggesting that we don't belong. And um, that's both true and not true. So, um, you know, uh, part of the problem we've got is that we have this emotional reaction to the end of um, Christendom. Mm. The um, uh, you know the post-Christian turn, and we are tempted, I think, either to want to go back, and so we become very angry that we are in this position, and we perhaps withdraw into a Christian ghetto, mm. or we are aggressive in public and mm. we're demanding. Our rights, you know, that go back into our Christian past, in a way that I think is really unhelpful. Actually, um, not that I don't value those things; I do value them. Um, but the other, the other way we can react, almost in response to that, is that we want to fit in. None of us like feeling this sort of social marginalisation that Christianity's inhabiting right now. So we kind of assimilate and we will just bend everything in, in the Bible, in the gospel that doesn't quite make everyone happy to make it fit. And that's an, also a disastrous strategy. Um, and it's, both of those reactions are happening because we think home is where we've come from in the past. In some mm. imagined golden era, there's a nostalgia and it's a really toxic emotion um, Because we we, we feel this alienation. And so, what I try to do in the book is to show us that, in a way, that feeling of alienation is the normal Christian life, right? Mm -hmm. You know, Jesus says, You are no more of the world than I'm of the world, but you've been sent into the world. So, instead of feeling alienated, we need to inhabit an identity of being ambassadors, not unwilling, but sent on purpose and knowing we're going to feel a bit out of sorts. Obviously, you know, this is God's world. You know, um he loves the goodness of creation and we should. Um and in that sense this is the home that God's made for us. So this is not an anti-material mm. point I'm making or an anti-world point, anti-creation point, but it is an anti-world as it is now point. We are our home is in the kingdom coming. It's in our citizenship in heaven. Um, that's the place from which we can bring God's life back. You know, heaven, God's wanting to bring heaven to earth. That's the Lord's Mm. prayer. Mm. Not that we escaped from it. And um, so I think this is a vital change of posture. Um, It's an emotional thing. And without that, none of the other things I'd like to say about what mistakes are the church making. We won't be able to change any of them. Sure. But of course, I want to see the sacred-secular divide mm-hmm. change. I, I think the massive opportunity is that we recapture, we reimagine the missional integration of the gathered and scattered church. There is so much clericalization of of church, you know, and um, what's spiritual, what counts as mission, um, is everything to do with hierarchical clerical leadership. Um, Do you mean a
0: sort of professionalization of the things that, uh, you know, evangelism and that being outsourced to people other than the person in the pew sort of thing?
1: Yes. Um, but, but again, we, 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 um, um, we need to think about mission very much more broadly than um, it certainly should include uh, evangelism. But we shouldn't narrow mission to only evangelism, mm. um, because you know God cares about um, uh, justice as well as He cares about the lawyer, mm. uh, right? You know, um, so you know it's 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 a both hand thing, and yeah. and and of course, um, and, and I think um, so. I, I think that reimagining. Uh, the way in which the life of the spirit and the gospel and the new creation can break into a place, into a city, into a society through the church, um, gathered and scattered in in unity across the denominations, working together in a city. Um, and, And this is not something I'm just making up. There's plenty of examples of this now. Um, but sadly we need, you know, the, the, we just need lots more of them. Mm, I mean, yeah. uh, you know, the, the, the unity movements that we've seen in this country, the gather movement, the movement day movement, these mm. are really, really exciting, um, examples of what I'm talking about, um, where ordinary people around the country will be able to look and see the difference that Christians make in the yeah. world. That's when they will be open to hearing the gospel and their own for their for their own personal lives and um, this is a huge key to mission you know we talk about reaching uh, a a fallen society and how we're going to do it and uh, but yet you know the church is full of people who are are engaged in all of these spheres and we just we have no idea of how to mobilize them
0: Mm. and it's one of those sad stories in a way isn't it that so often our churches tend to you know if if they have some sort of special celebration of someone in ministry it'll always be some sort of special church role that they're doing and being commissioned for and so on but we don't commission the nurses and the doctors and the teachers and the business people who are the, the, the you know the majority of the people that make up our congregations for the ministry that they're sent out to do because somehow we've, we've continued to retain this sort of, well, what goes on here on a Sunday is the real business of God and what goes on in the world is kind of the added extra.
1: That's right. I mean, there are exceptions, and I think it's important to say that because mm. LICC have been brilliant. Um, mm. they've, they've, they've collaborated with the Bishop of uh, London, you know, uh, that's committed to 10,000 um, workplace ambassadors being commissioned throughout uh, London. Um, and, uh, you know, there are, that, that's a movement that's, that's beginning to spread through the church of England and there are other, you know, uh, things going on in other denominations like this, but, um, um, this is, these are just baby steps in the direction yeah. that I'm trying to talk about because, um, we're still, um, um, you know, I, I, I think another, you know, another, another mistake, I suppose, another, another feature of this issue is how we think about the Bible and discipleship. You know, Mm. again, the Bible's become professionalized. There's nothing wrong with um, learning, doing biblical studies. I've done a biblical studies degree. I've learned Hebrew and Greek. But, you know, you don't need to have expert knowledge to get life and truth out of the scripture. There are amazing Bible tools. Mm. What we need church leaders to be doing is opening up these tools um, and opening up the scriptures and the breadth of them to the congregation. Um, uh, but so often the Bible is very clericalized, very spe- specialized mm. um, and privatized. You know, the, the, in a way, sometimes we're our own worst enemies in, 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 in congregations. We, we kind of ask for and then get a kind of therapeutic sermon. Yes. But the thing we need is the very sharp, you know, piercing, painful word of God that Mm. purifies us and uh, ends up um, cutting out the things that aren't bearing fruit and bringing more life to the things that Mm. are. Um, But you know, no, you know, we'll we'll never ask for that, but we need it.
0: One of the things you bring out in the book is, is the way that the story, the whole sweep of scripture, the story that that tells uh, you compare and contrast that with the other competing stories, if you like, that are out there. do you want to explain what some of those other stories are and, and, and what we need to do to bring the Bible those into conversation with what the Bible says about the way life is and what it's about and, and our ultimate destination.
1: Well, the, the, The entire enterprise of doing that is predicated on a conviction that um, the Bible um, reveals the true story of the world to us um, that encompasses the whole of creation, the purposes of God through time for all humanity. Um, It's really important that we lay hold of that truth and that story um you know i think newbegin makes the point that the only story that could contain the life death and resurrection of jesus christ is one for which that those events are the starting point um so um if we're trying to harmonize christian faith with environmentalism or consumer capitalism or Um, you know, the postmodern search for identity. Um, If We're trying to harmonize these things. We're on a hiding to nothing. If on the other hand, we're able to understand. I mean, one of the things I try to do for my readers is to put the shape of the biblical story um, alongside um, and and see, see these other narratives. You know, that the capitalism is a, is a, is a narrative. It, it tells us how to think about what a human being is, what the world is, what um, ultimate reality is, You know what we're here for. Capitalism seeks to answer these questions, and it disciples us. It disciples us every day through advertising, mm-hmm. every time you go in a shopping mall, um, every time you're you know, online, you're bombarded with ad- ads, and you, you're, you're repeating these, these stories of um, you're worth it. You know, mm. classic advertising mm. um, that's appealing to these different parts of the narrative, um, the individualism, and and um, of course secularism has um, melded with that story. It's a version of it in the political sphere, in a sense, um, uh, and and you know the whole sort of postmodern search um, for identity is similar because we've we've basically said. Um, that my whole self, my body is a piece of private property, you know, that I own. I can do what I want with it. Mm -hmm. And it becomes part of the consumer world that I trade. I exchange this bit of my identity for another bit. And I'm constantly trading new bits in and out. Now, if I am not able to critically understand the problems, the differences between this narrative of the economy and consumer capitalism, and the story of the Bible and where they really conflict. And it's not that they conflict on everything. You know, there's lots of things about our modern life that the Bible would affirm, but the only way we can tell the difference is if we really have, um, you know, there's some discipline in our, in our thinking and our, um, these are the sorts of things that we ought to be concentrating on in our Bible studies.
0: Mm. Mm. It's, it, it, there's so much i wanted to unpack and sadly time is against us uh paul so I, i'll i'll end with this question which is we've talked a lot about the theory um what about the practice where do we go from here you know we're looking at a post-christian post-secular ultimately post-pandemic world <laughs> as as we move out of lockdown um do you think the church is well positioned to take this challenge on and to become these exiles on a mission that's you know learned the lessons from the past and is ready to to make a difference for the future?
1: I think we have an extraordinary opportunity in lockdown. And I see some churches um, that I believe are taking it and laying hold of it. Um, And I fear that others are not. Um, And I think the opportunity is this. It's not an opportunity to be super activist. In fact, that's the last thing we should be doing. Um, This is an opportunity for us to, Be still. Um, Pentecost, the discipline was to wait, to draw near to the heart of God. This is an incredible turning point in history that we're living through. And the opportunity for us is to be still, to draw near to the heart of God, to pray, to have our imagination shaped in prayer. Um, by the scripture, by the spirit, as to what God wants us to see about what's coming, what's next, what we should be doing next. Not to rush off and just try to do some version of what we used to be doing before, Mm. or just some um, slight you know, Christianized version of what other people are doing. Not that it's necessarily wrong, Mm. but the way that we can serve our community is by doing the one thing that nobody else is doing which is listening to what the Spirit's saying um, and being able to act as we come out of this lockdown and the pandemic sort of begins to fade from a place where we have a genuine prophetic imagination for our society. We're bringing something that only God can bring, that only the Spirit of God can bring. And um, we'll only get that if we have the discipline of waiting until we hear God, until we are empowered. And um, we have, so yeah, that, that, that's the huge opportunity. Mm. Let's take it and not just rush around being activists in our own effort so that we look good.
0: Well, look, uh, lots of stuff to think over and plenty of challenge there. Um, Do encourage you to get a copy of the book. Exiles on Mission, How Christians Can Thrive in a Post-Christian World. Paul, thank you very much for giving some time today to be with us on the profile. Uh, All the very best as you continue, for the moment at least, from lockdown to lead the Bible Society. Um, uh, Would you give us the the website as well of Bible Society in case people want to uh, catch up on the work that you do there?
1: Absolutely, biblesociety.org.uk and we've done a lot of research that many of your listeners will love on Bible attitudes that help for mission You can find all of that at lumino.bible.
0: Fantastic. I'll make sure there are links from today's show as well if you're listening via podcast for a moment. Thank you very much, Paul. And I look forward to chatting again at some point in the future.
1: Thanks for having me, Justin, very much.
0: You've been listening to The Profile with me, Justin Browley, and brought to you as usual in partnership with Premier Christianity magazine. If you'd like a free sample copy of the mag, do feel free to go and ask for one at the website, premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample and today's show is available as usual as a podcast Uh, you're simply looking for the profile podcast wherever you get your podcasts from for the moment thank you very much for joining us we'll be back with another guest at the same time next week